0: This is 15 Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs, featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15 Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin.
1: Today's guest, Megan Raby, is the author of American Tropics, The Caribbean Roots of Biodiversity Science, which explores the relationship between field ecology, the expansion of U.S. power in the Caribbean during the 20th century, and the emergence of the modern concept of biodiversity. Megan Raby, welcome to the studio.
0: Hi, it's great to be
1: here, Chris. So why don't we start uh, just sort of talking a little bit about what I, I mentioned in the introduction, which is the idea that there is a connection between imperialism and science before we get into the topic of your book. Can you talk a little bit more about what the connection is there?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. If you think about it, imperialism really and colonial projects depend on the exploitation of nature as well as people, right? And so there's a variety of ways that knowledge about nature or science, right, can be uh, involved in those projects, The British Empire had things like Hugh Gardens, and it sent out botanists and naturalists around the world to try to find a Plants with uh, economic botany potential, so uh, things like chocolate that we take for granted now or uh, cinchona, the bark of a tree that produces quinine, an antimalarial drug. But also you might think about how um, physicians and medical scientists might be involved in colonial enterprises too, uh, concern for tropical medicine, the treatment of um, Diseases that people from Europe or the United States might encounter when they're in tropical environments like malaria or yellow fever. Those are things of concern to empires, right? Uh, Exploiting agriculture, concern for bodies in various kinds of colonial, often tropical environments um, that are concerns from a medical standpoint.
1: And also economic, presumably, because a lot of these things could be turned into pharmaceuticals.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So presenting the idea of the environment itself as a resource that can be exploited, but not only the environment, but the field of ecology. You particularly talk about biodiversity, you know, comes out of this, this milieu of American involvement in the Caribbean.
0: Yeah. So the idea of biodiversity, right, that's a word that scientists use. It's a piece of biological jargon. Basically, all it means in general is uh, the number and variety of species in a given area, Mm -hmm. as well as its genetic and ecological kind of variation in a given area. But it's something that, you know, everyday people use, too. We talk about enjoying biodiversity in nature, things like that, saving biodiversity, from a conservation standpoint. But you know, scientific ideas have particular histories and when most historians and philosophers and scientists themselves have talked about the idea of biodiversity, they often point to its, you know, when it was coined as a term in 1986, right as the title for a symposium that the Smithsonian held and the National Academies of Science, which kind of alerted the world to a global biodiversity uh, crisis of extinction in 1986. But, you know, what I look at in the book is actually there's a much deeper history of that idea. That idea of the number and variety of species in different parts of the world is a longstanding study uh, that naturalists have been concerned about. You know, you can go back to Aristotle, but especially like 18th and 19th centuries, but what I found is that the very specific idea of biodiversity has an even more kind of recent history uh, and recent predecessors in concepts like species diversity that kind of came before and were used in a smaller kind of elite group of scientists, of ecologists, biologists in the 20th century, right? And so what I found is that um, that idea especially came out of ecologists' work in trying to understand why the tropics had so many species. So why certain regions of the world, particularly tropical rainforests, right, had more species in them than, say, a a, rain, or a a northern forest. So you might find, you know, birch or oak trees and, you know, a handful of species of trees in a north temperate forest, but you find just hundreds of uh, species of trees in a tropical rainforest. So the differences between northern environments and environments in the tropical regions um, were something that struck uh, traveling naturalists for a long time, right? And this is something that they wanted to study.
1: And in the book, you specifically look at how a lot of this work was done by American scientists, specifically working in the Caribbean and in Latin America.
0: Yeah. So this is the thing, is that if say, in the 1890s, when actually ecology first emerges as a uh, a scientific field, first in Europe, but American U.S. scientists are also interested in taking part in ecology. But if they're going to study the relationship between plants and animals and their environments in tropical environments, they're going to actually have to go to the tropics, right? And so if you want to go to the tropics and you're from the United States in the 1890s through the turn of the 20th century, how are you going to get there, right? And so what ecologists have to do is basically there's a relationship there, a mutualistic relationship between ecologists and growing uh, U.S. interests in economically exploiting environments in the Caribbean. the growth of corporations like the United Fruit Company that's Mm -hmm. growing banana plantations increasingly in the into the early 20th century. But really, there's a turning point um, in the lead-up to the Spanish-American War in 1898. Not only is the broad U.S. population debating, some people very much pushing to get involved in Cuba's independence war with Spain, but ecologists, scientists, are involved in that debate. They argue Yes, United States scientists need to be able to have access to tropical environments in order to do cutting-edge science in this new field of ecology. And so they should take advantage of uh, not only newly informally accessible through steamship routes, etc., that begin to expand in the Circum-Caribbean, but after 1898, when the U.S. acquires uh, Cuba temporarily, uh, Puerto Rico also the Philippines, of course. And then by 1914, when there's the uh, Panama Canal is opened, um, uh, you have a period of time in which U.S. scientists have a lot of access to U.S. colonies, right? Mm-hmm. The Panama Canal Zone uh, to Cuba and U.S. land holdings by sugar corporations, for example, in Cuba. Uh, and so U.S. scientists have a lot more access to land where they can... Do research, and this is what I focus on. That's the way in which science was quite literally colonial, in, in in the sense that they set up research stations. They set up particular sites that U.S. scientists could go to and stay in a tropical environment, <laughs> uh, or how they characterized the environment as right. tropical. Of course, including a lot of different kinds of diversity of different sorts of places, from plantations to to forest. But they needed places where they felt they could be comfortable, be safe from tropical diseases, Um, also where they uh, could do long-term studies, uh, repeat visits over time, um, and have access to uh, what they consider to be natural or less developed vegetation and the animals that might live there that they could study. So they wanted to be close to nature, but to do so in a place that they were not native to, they're foreigners in. They needed particular kinds of institutions. And those institutions ended up binding them very closely to U.S. colonial interests, right? They got funding and land from U.S. uh, sugar corporations. For example, Harvard had a field station in Cuba at the Soledad sugar plantation near Cienfuegos, uh, run by the Famous uh, sugar baron Edwin F. Atkins. He was a patron of Harvard scientists there, and they set up a long-standing field station there, very long-standing, the longest-standing one until the Cuban Revolution. In which case, uh, at that point, um, the station was transferred to uh, Cuban administration. At that point, but so you can get the sense of um, how U.S. scientists are. Uh, connected, um, not in the same way that agricultural scientists are specifically trying to develop economic resources, not in the sense that medical researchers are specifically trying to enable so called white settlement in tropical environments, but in the sense that there's a close kind of relationship mediated around their, the scientists' need for access to land and then the kinds of um, less direct benefits that maybe uh, knowledge of tropical environments or sponsorship and the prestige of sponsorship of science could give back to those sponsors, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as these research centers are set up, as you mentioned, they're very long-lived. You know, They're established toward the beginning of the century and some of them go on You know, past the Second World War
0: Some of them are long-lived. Others are short, and it's difficult for—because unlike—you know, there may be a stereotype that, you know, uh, colonial enterprises are kind of centralized from the metropole, but actually the United States has several different scientific centers, right? Mm -hmm. New York and Washington, D.C. and in Boston, right? And so actually different U.S. scientific institutions—the Smithsonian, Harvard— uh, a variety of New York scientific institutions, they're really kind of competing with each other. And sometimes they actually, you know, are literally talking to each other using, joking with imperial metaphors about dividing up the Caribbean among them and gaining their own kind of individual territories for where they're going to collect specimens or where they're going to actually set up these um, institutions.
1: Well, you know, and that that's actually sort of a an interesting point, because if you're not competing with anyone, there's no drive to sort of further your your, your knowledge or, or to, go, to go the extra mile. And uh, as you point out in your book, you know, they actually uncovered a great diversity and began arguing for diversity itself as a resource.
0: Right. Yeah. So I start by talking about and showing how these field institutions are colonial because they're embedded in transportation and funding and networks and actually access to land itself, which is extremely important if you're going to study the environment, right? But this relationship to U.S. interests actually does shape the rhetoric that scientists have over why um, the U.S. government or why corporations should fund them, especially given that they're not necessarily producing direct benefits back for specific companies. They're not studying bananas and banana diseases necessarily, although some of them might, you know, in their graduate training, go to one of these field stations and then go on to work for a company. So that's kind of an indirect relationship. But no, more and more, these researchers argue, beginning really in the 20s and 30s, that studying tropical nature in general is important because there may be undeveloped resources that, so for example, uh, Thomas Barber, who was a herpetologist, he studied lizards and he ran the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard. He um, directed Harvard's field station in Cuba, but he also helped set up a field station at Barrow, Colorado Island. And now this is a really interesting site because this is a site in the middle of the Panama Canal. It's actually, so within the Panama Canal zone, that was... Um, operated by the U.S. government. It's, it's on an artificial island, <laughs> an island that was formed when the canal and Lake Katoon was flooded. Uh, and it was turned into a nature reserve through the arguments of him and some others. And a field station uh, was placed there, not under Harvard's operation, but a kind of independent station. But the idea there is not that they're going to uh, test out new varieties of rubber or uh, or or field test new products, new products or anything like that. But that they're going to study nature in an undisturbed state. It sounds quite strange because it's an artificial island, right? right. So it's been disturbed. It is a human um, human shaped environment. But Barber argues, you know, we need to understand tropical nature and how it functions, right? So that even if we're studying monkey behavior or butterfly taxonomy here, which seem pretty esoteric, uh, what we're doing is getting U.S. scientists, a population of U.S. scientists who have experience in the tropics, understand tropical nature, and maybe there are going to be other kinds of benefits we can't expect yet from this kind of basic research. So it's a basic research argument, not a pure research that's kind of esoteric and for theoretical ends, but an idea of basic research that ultimately we can't necessarily know how it will be applied, but it's important that we invest in it in case it may be applied. So there's an argument being made there that government agencies and corporations uh, should sponsor them. So, and they were always on a little bit of a shoestring budget, mm-hmm. but it was a functional enough kind of argument. And, think, you know, United Fruit Company gave free rides for their researchers on their ships. Not, not a small thing for um, the fact that, you know, to be from like a Midwestern college and to go do your own tropical expedition like Charles Darwin or Alfred Russell Wallace would have been... Very expensive and very difficult. So these institutions enabled uh, a lot of U.S. scientists to work in tropical environments when they wouldn't have already. Um, but there's a lot of other consequences to that, right? So so the, the main point you, you had asked about was, was uh, here, you know, you're seeing that actually it affects the intellectual arguments being made for why do tropical research in the first place.
1: So... As the 20th century moves on, you know, uh, you've brought up United Fruit Company a few times, and United Fruit Company was linked to some unsavory business, to say the least, in Guatemala. Uh, You know, in the 1950s, um, you've already mentioned the Cuban Revolution. How did these institutions sort of deal with, you know, the sort of post-World War II uh, uh, push for autonomy, if not outright uh, independence from U.S. hegemony in in the region.
0: Yeah, that's a really key moment. So uh, you see a major shift, actually. So one of the other important things to note about these institutions is that while they gave access to uh, certain kinds of environments throughout the Caribbean to U.S. researchers. And those were very important because they allowed long-term study, they allowed concentrated in-place studies, uh, really important for understanding ecosystems in in a very understudied place. But as much as they gave access, they also excluded other people. So there would be, for example, Panamanians on Colorado Island, but most of them they were working as the workforce, right? They are cooks and cleaners and technicians, boat driver, people who are—really mainta- important work maintaining the station, right, for um, for these U.S. visitors. But there's not that many Latin American scientists. Mm-hmm. And they're not— um, outright barred or anything, but there's not much of an effort on the part of the station administrators to bring them in. There are Latin American scientists, but most of them are working in urban areas, and there's not a lot of communication. Uh, there are interesting exceptions, but there's not a lot of communication, and these these sites tend to be fairly insular. So there's great Cuban scientific community, and, and there are Cuban affiliates with the Soledad Station, but really it's mainly seen as a place for U.S. scientists to get some tropical experience Experience and not necessarily to make strong connections with their Latin American counterparts
1: so again, but, this is where the colonial aspect yeah there's comes another colonial yeah.
0: aspect to the way these places operated on a cultural standpoint, um, and it's very clear when you kind of hear the way they talk about their visits in a very romanticized way, uh, and the romanticization is of tropical nature and not necessarily of you know. Panamanian people or Cuban people or other examples I have are from Guyana and Jamaica. But what you asked about was the key moment following the Cuban Revolution uh, and the larger 1960s global kind of decolonization. You have nationalist movements throughout Latin America. U.S. ecologists have to respond to this because... The Cuban Revolution cuts Harvard off from its very significant site—a site where they were holding classes, where E.O. Wilson, the famous living biologist, uh, first got his taste of the tropics. There, he talks about visiting there in the nineteen in 1953. They lose access to their site when um, it's appropriated by the Cuban government by Castro in in uh, 1962 and 63, and throughout the 60s. Really, there's protests in Panama about the. Uh, Panama Canal treaties, a request, <laughs> strong efforts to um, renegotiate those treaties, which starts to happen in the 1970s. So it's not at all clear to, to the Smithsonian, which by that point is operating the station at Barrow, Colorado Island, that they're going to be able to maintain access for, sci- for U.S. scientists in Panama. It's a moment of time when the U.S. scientific community is very nervous, or at least the U.S. scientific community of, of tropical ecologists, as they are beginning to call themselves at this point, that they're going to be able to maintain access to these sites that they really depend on for the work that they do. So in that moment... What happens? You see a huge burst of in- new institutionalizing uh, activity, a call for uh, an association for tropical biology, a professional society that's international, that mm-hmm. doesn't just include United States scientists. You see the foundation of a new organization, the Organization for Tropical Studies, which is based in Costa Rica and is, uh, is meant to be a collaboration between the University of Costa Rica involving Costa Ricans, as well as um, a handful of universities in the United States that used to go to other stations, including Harvard, um, including Michigan and other places. Um, and so there's an internationalist rhetoric that arises. There's a rhetoric, finally, about conservation and international um, conservation of Species diversity, something they've been studying from an intellectual standpoint for a long time, but are now framing as something to actually be saved and conserved for the global good, for the good of the host countries where they're working, rather than framing that as a potential kind of natural resource for the U.S., uh, for U.S. interests, right? So there's an internationalizing, and there's a kind of global conservation kind of element that's brought into this. So the the rhetoric and the justification and the connection to conservation really changes, and I'd argue it really has to do with an institution, an institutional problem, and a and a political problem mm-hmm. that they confront. Um, uh, what had served them so well, allying with U.S. government agencies and corporations throughout most of the 20th century, suddenly became a liability in the 1960s. And so that really materially affected science.
1: So in terms of thinking about the overall trajectory of this story, are these still the key sites where, are they still functional today?
0: Yeah, these sites remain very important sites. Um, So the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, still maintains a, an important field station at Barrow, Colorado Island, but it's expanded. There are many, it's a network of sites throughout uh, Panama. Now, STRI uh, operates jointly with Panama, right? So it is no longer simply a U.S. institution. They negotiated their way through that moment of crisis to, to become a, a, an international institution there. The Organization for Tropical Studies still exists as a collaboration between Costa Rica and and other universities. You know, these are sites that are incredibly important from an environmental sciences standpoint and a conservation st- standpoint because we know we still, ecological studies, still, there's a geographical bias where most ecology field work is done in the U.S. and Europe. There's mm-hmm. a temperate mm-hmm. zone bias in what we know about our planet in terms of ecosystems, right? So, th- so, so those institutions are still extremely important, and they're not the only places where that work gets done now, but they're long-term research, so we understand long-term changes over time. But at the same time, you know, I would argue that you can see a legacy that continues uh, in that geographical bias... When it is done in the tropics, it tends to be done on these near these long-standing stations, except in Brazil and Mexico, which has kind of much stronger national um, scientific institutions uh, than these ones in Central America and the Caribbean that I focus on. But also, there's a bias in the d- demography of who's participating, right? And and I think it's important for the scientists who are involved to recognize that there were these longstanding kind of ways that those stations were exclusive. um, And there were a lot of missed opportunities to help build up connections and to build up local uh, science, right? And that, uh, you know, understanding that history might actually help build more bridges, help um, bring more equity to that scientific field. So I do think that there's a lot um, about the story that I, you know, uncovered in this work, that um, has modern relevance for, for people in that field, but also, you know, for all of us who should care about, <laughs> about the global environment and how we know what we know about the planet, basically.
1: Well, that's about all the time we have. I'd love to thank you for, for being with us today. It's great to have you in the studio. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15 org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemisphere's Outreach Consortium. Our executive director is Joe Newberger, and our technical editors are Augusta DeLomo and Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Development Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.